Thanks so much for listening to the City Church Podcast. We pray that this message draws you closer to the heart of Jesus and impacts your daily life. For more resources, check out ourcitychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. You glad to be at church this morning? You glad to be here? Listen, it is an exciting time to be a part of City Church. God is just doing some incredible things right now. You are in the midst of God doing a special move, and I am glad that you are here and a part of this journey with us. Take a second. Are you glad for Justin? Are you thankful for him? Can we just take a second and honor him this morning? I'm so grateful for him as a leader, as a friend. Yeah, so grateful. You know, we've been in this sermon series, Just Tell Me What to Do. I don't know how many of you made it all four weeks. Come on, how many people made it to all four weeks of Just Tell Me What to Do? I mean, you're so much better than the 9 a.m. The 9 a.m. was like two people. They're lame. You guys are so much more godly. That's awesome. That's good. Listen, if you missed any of those, I don't want to oversell them, but they are powerful and potent talks, which if you will digest them and really grab hold of them, have the ability to really change the trajectory of your life as you learn to hear God's voice. As you learn to hear how God speaks and how he directs us and how he leads us, powerful stuff that you will lean on for, I believe, the rest of your days. All right? Listen, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to start in verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We're going to have them, uh, the verses up on the screen behind me, okay? Picking it up in verse 12, Paul writes this to the church of Philippi. He says, not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, But I press on to make it my own, because Jesus, Christ Jesus, had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will also reveal that to you. All right, if you're taking notes this morning, name of this morning's sermon is Closing the Gap. Closing the Gap. All right, let's pray as we begin. Lord Jesus, we again love you, declare our utter dependence on you. God, each and every one of us longs to hear from you this morning. And so right now, we just ask that you would just quiet the noise. Help us to hear you. Help us to hear your word calling out to us, speaking to us this morning. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Any, any NBA fans in the audience? Anybody been tracking the NBA? Some of you? Yeah. You know it's an exciting time if you're an NBA fan. It is playoffs. The Western Conference Finals are going on right now in the Eastern Conference Finals. In the West, you've got the Golden State Warriors squared off against the Oklahoma City Thunder. In case you're wondering what's going on in the NBA world, for the 98% of you who didn't raise your hand, here's what's going on. All right? Seven-game series between the Thunder and the Warriors, and they're locked 3-3. And that series is going to wrap up here in the next day or two and determine who goes to the NBA Finals. Golden State Warriors are led by one of the most unassuming athletes I've seen, Steph Curry. All right, he's this point guard. He looks like a 17-year-old. He's not very tall. He's not very strong. And yet he is the back-to-back NBA MVP. How on earth do you go about becoming the back-to-back MVP in a world of LeBron James and people who are just gigantic athletes? I was reading an article this week on Steph Curry, and it was uh, one of his former teammates talking about him. His former teammate was playing with the Warriors, and and this guy was his rookie season. 
This guy was barely getting into any games, maybe just a couple minutes a night, really unsure if he'd even stay on the team the whole season. Excuse me. And so this player, every night practice would end, let's say they end at 5, he'd stay till about 7 o'clock every night, just working, just trying to get better, right? Trying to earn his spot on the team, trying to make sure he'd have a future in the NBA. Now the crazy thing was that this rookie is staying for an hour or two every night. Steph Curry was there right there with him every single night. The back-to-back NBA most valuable player was staying every single night after practice to work on shooting, to work on dribbling. I remember seeing an interview with Steph, and uh, he was talking about why he does this. And the interview said something like, man, you've got one of the most prolific work ethics in all the NBA. But you're the MVP. Man, why, why would you work so hard? Why would you stay after practice every single night? I remember Steph's answer. So, so potent. says this. He says, why? He says, I can get better. I know I can. He says, I haven't reached my ceiling yet on how well I can shoot the basketball. Hasn't reached its potential. You know, potential is an interesting thing, isn't it? It's an interesting topic that we sometimes talk about. It comes up a lot in culture. Sometimes we'll talk about it as as an adjective and we'll say, man, I'm, I'm developing a sales marketing strategy to drum up some potential customers, or we'll use it like a noun. We'll have a new person at work, and within, you know, 10 minutes of meeting that person, we'll say, wow, I really sense some, some leadership potential in that person. This season, this political season, boy, the language is just rife with potential talk, isn't it? Every candidate is trying to convince us that all the potential our country has, they're the ones who are going to be able to unlock it for us. So every candidate is trying to get you to believe that they're the one who has the best ability to unlock our country's potential. I don't know about you, though. Potential can be a haunting thing, can it not? To believe that there's a version of you out there that is, is better in some ways. Whatever, whatever way you're talking about potential these days, whether it's stronger. To know there's a version of out there that is still being worked on, but that you're not enjoying yet. Waiting to be enjoyed, waiting to be unleashed It's almost a little frightening, isn't it? One author said it this way. He said, the greatest waste in the world is the difference between what we are and what we could become. There are a few things more frightening for me personally than the thought of coming to the end of my life, being in a hospital bed at the ripe old age of 112, being lived off of kale most of my life here, looking back on 112 years and believing I didn't live up to all that God had for me. Anybody else know that thought? A little frightening, a little terrifying. To believe that we might not meet our potential. It's also a haunting thing because often we get a little taste of that next level, don't we? Maybe you've been following Jesus for a little while now. Romans 14 tells us that the kingdom of God, the one that we enter enter into through faith in Jesus, is one of peace and joy and righteousness. So maybe you've known what it's like to have peace take over your heart. Maybe you heard that your job was on the line and rather than responding with fear and anxiety and worry, you felt the peace of God just rest on you. Maybe that joy, the psalmist talks about the joy of the Lord, you can feel it just sort of bubbling in, that joy that gets you through life's most difficult moments. Maybe the righteousness of Christ has begun to take root in your heart and things that have been addictions for years, you've begun to taste just sweet relief from. Sweet relief of the holiness of Christ as it takes over. 
Man, if I'm honest, and maybe you too, I thought it'd be a whole lot quicker than this, though. I thought I'd come to know Jesus, and within a good six months, I'd give myself six months, all that past stuff would be erased. All that anger that I used to wrestle with would be gone. All that propensity to tell little half-truths when I could tell the whole truth would be behind me. And, and that, that this person I'm becoming would just walk in grace, angerless, never selfish. I'd never know what it was like to hurt my wife with words that sting. Maybe you're a college student here and you just got through your final exams. And you had to wrestle with, I can cheat and get a slightly better grade. Or I can take this thing honestly and get the grade that I deserve. Maybe if you're honest, you chose the road of cheating. Final exams, a lot of pressure, right? I bet you didn't know that if you are here and you're a grandmother and you've got a son, a grandson or a granddaughter who's in college, you are, it is a good thing that you are still alive here in May. Let me tell you what I mean. Mike Adams is a professor at Eastern State, uh, Eastern Connecticut State University. And he's been tracking for the last several years the death of grandparents right around midterms and finals. All right, so it comes, he tells us, and says, grandmothers are 10 times more likely to pass away right around a midterm. He said, grandmas are 19 times more likely to quote-unquote pass away so that the student conveniently doesn't have to be there for the final. If, you're, if your grandson or granddaughter is failing a class, you are 50 times more likely to pass away during the semester. Did you know that? If you're living and breathing and your student is failing, you are lucky. All right? If you've got a senior and they're not doing so good at school, do not let them go to college because it's not going to go well for you. All right? Every single one of us knows what it's like to lean away from what God has for us the best. To choose, instead of choosing God, to choose self. You know? We all know that feeling. Not a single one of us knows, doesn't know what that's like. Paul even wrote about it. He says this in Romans 7, and maybe you can relate to his words. He says this. He says in the message translation, I just really like how it says it. it. says, I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly, he says, that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Anybody relate to this? Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. If we were to go around the room, would there be a single person who can't relate to what Paul says? Is there a single person here who, who wouldn't say, man, I so want that, that part of me that, that I want to have die. I want it to be gone. And yet you sit here and I stand here on May 29th, and if we're honest, it ain't gone. It still seems to creep up. Why is that? What is that thing inside us? You know, we look at ourselves and we say, man, I, I know there's a version of me that is gentler. I know God has, has more grace for me in the words with my spouse. I know God has more kindness for me in how I relate to my kids. I know God has a version of me that is more honest with how I deal with my finances. A version of me that 
even just walks in tune with the Holy Spirit in greater measure. And I think we'd score 100% if we ask the question, who knows that there's a gap? There's a gap right now that exists in my life, and there's a gap that exists in your life. There, exi- there exists in our lives a gap between the life you are living right now and the unlived life within you that God has called you to. There's a gap. Paul this morning in our text is relating the very same sentiment. In verses 1 through 11, which we don't have time to read, Paul has been laying out for the church at Philippi what it means to follow Jesus. He's been describing for them the the high calling of God. He's been laying out for them what it looks like to pursue Jesus with his whole heart. What it means to really know God. You know, that's what Paul's been saying these first 11 verses. And then when we picked it up in verse 12, what was it that he said? He said, not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. I'm not there yet, Paul says, but I'm moving towards it. I see this thing that God has called me to, and I know I'm on that journey. I'm on that path. He's describing the gap. And then lucky for us, he goes and describes what are the ways that he's going about closing the gap. I want you to look at Paul, though. I mean, how could Paul not be content with his relationship with God? You know, I look at Paul and I'm like, bro, you wrote three quarters of the New Testament. Like, bro, you went to third heaven, whatever the heck that is. Right, we don't even know. Like, you heard the audible voice of God. I've never heard the audible voice of God. Paul, you're the greatest missionary that our faith has ever seen. How could you possibly say you don't know him? And Paul just says, no, 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 I'm not that man yet. You've got to know that, that God's calling me. I'm not the one who calls it as lost. And what you hear, just, just the dripping in Paul, Paul's words is this. What I'm going to call a holy discontentment. A holy discontentment with the place he is right now. A divine dissatisfaction, if you want to say it another way. And the thing with Paul is, man, this is a guy who's seen all sorts of things that you and I haven't seen. He operates on a whole other level than you and I operate on. You and I, when someone is sick, what do we do? We go over, maybe we lay hands on them, and we pray that God would heal them. Paul is walking by a guy, sees him lame, and he's like, quit that, stand up, get on your way. Like, can we be honest that Paul is operating on a whole other level than you and I do? And yet, even in Paul, you can hear his soul just crying out, saying, this is not good enough. I know there's more. You can hear it just dripping in his voice. What I've learned from just reading the works of Paul is that there's something hardwired into our soul if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus. This holy discontentment as the Spirit of God within us cries out to our Father that says, man, there is more. God has more for you. God has a deeper level of freedom to be walked in. God has a new level of power to be experienced. God has a new level he wants to exercise your gifts. And so what we hear from Paul is his holy discontentment just coming through. But if I'm honest, man, I don't always feel discontent. I don't know how many can relate to that. It's like this life has a way of just numbing that discontentment. Our life has a way of just just quieting that voice. Why does it seem like this holy discontentment is so hard to come by? Like it's so easy to just get lulled into just existing. It's so easy to get quieted into just getting by. 
Why is it that the discontent of our souls gets unplugged from its source so quickly and so often? Several years ago, I was out in Southern California at a uh, conference for young church leaders. I was much younger at the time, and so I was invited. I don't know if I get invited anymore, but it was out in Southern California. And uh, it was one of those things where they bring in a band that everybody's heard of, and they fill the lineup with a bunch of pastors and authors and speakers that everybody has heard of and wants to hear. And so I fly all the way out there, and, and I remember looking through the list. I know this guy, I know this guy. Oh, the closer, yeah, he's real good, I know him. And then I remember reading in the middle, it says an interview with Dallas Willard. And I remember thinking, who the heck is Dallas Willard? You know? And I'm like, definitely not excited about it, because if I haven't heard of him, clearly he's not a big deal, all right? So I'm thinking to myself, as an arrogant, it was like six months ago. No, it wasn't six months ago, I'm just kidding. I'm just teasing. It was like six whole long years ago, all right? And so I, I remember hearing, man, who's Dallas Willard? And the session comes around, and everybody cheers, and I'm like, I'm lost. But this guy comes walking out on stage. He's got a cane. He's 80 years old. He's walking out on stage, really, really slow. And the interviewer walks out with him. It's this guy named John Ortberg, all right? And I'm thinking, John Ortberg, he's doing the interview? Man, I know that guy. I want to listen to him talk, you know? And listen, if you're 80 years old, I, I was immature back then. I'm so glad you're here. Love you. Okay, so glad you're here. He walks out. He's got his cane. He's moving slowly. John helps him up into his seat. It's one of those moments where you realize you're in the presence of greatness, you know? He begins to talk, and it's like wisdom and experience just ooze out of him. Turns out this guy is a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California, where he's been a professor for 50 years, all right? He's got 50 years of wealth and walking with Jesus that he begins to just pour out on the audience, and John Ortberg, the interviewer, tells a story of when he was a young pastor and he went to this guy's house just looking for some help. Having trouble keeping up with the pace of life, having trouble pursuing God, having trouble allowing his soul to really yearn for God. He tells a story how he's sitting on Dallas Willard's couch. And he says, Dallas, what is the key to being more spiritually mature and healthy? Dallas takes a second, he pauses. He says just slowly, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. John, this fast-moving 30-year-old, oh yeah, yeah, great, great, that, that's good. Yeah, yeah, writes it all down. All right, what's next? Now what do I do? Like, no, 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 John, there is nothing else. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And Dallas is not talking about busyness. That's, that's completely different. He's talking about mental hurry. So you know, I know what all that's about, right? Where your brain is just going and going and you're going to the next thing. You're thinking about the next appointment. You're thinking about the bills that need to be paid. You're thinking about what you want to do with your kids. You're thinking about what's coming up next. And soon your brain's got no margin because you've jammed it full and it's so busy. See, for most of us here, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. The great danger for you and for me is that we become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that though we don't renounce our faith, we choose to settle for a mediocre version of it. That we will choose to skim our lives instead of living them. See, if we never learn 
to ruthlessly eliminate that hurry. We'll never let that fire that God wants to burn in us breathe. Like a good fire, it needs air, it needs plan, it needs purpose. When you allow your spirit to have that plan and that purpose, that fire that God is trying to light inside you, the same fire that Paul is describing, the same fire that the Spirit of God is stoking in you at all times. You give it some air, you let it breathe, it begins to grow. But if you take, you've, you've made a fire, right? If you take 12 logs and just heap it on a match, it's not going to go anywhere. You've got to give it some room. You've got to give it some air. You've got to let it breathe. And so Paul, in describing one thing, says this. He says one thing, right? And then he gives us three things. And so the very first thing that Paul's doing in going about closing the gap is this. I just call it divine dissatisfaction. And the truth is you already have it. It's in you as a son or a daughter of God. Divine dissatisfaction of your spirit is already there. The question is, are you giving it room to grow? This divine dissatisfaction is absolutely essential for closing the gap between who you are and who God's calling you to be. And eliminating hurry, Dallas would tell us, is all about giving room for this fire to be stoked and to grow. Now, this is not about feeling bad about yourself, okay? I don't mean that you're, about to, you're supposed to go around all the time being dissatisfied with who you are. I don't have enough skills. Oh, man, I'm a little heavier than I used to be. I'm not nearly as pretty as her. No, 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 no. That's not from the Lord. Divine dissatisfaction is all about God calling forth things in you that he created and designed you to be. And you not being satisfied until you're walking in completion of those things. That's divine dissatisfaction. So Paul goes on. What does he say? He says, forgetting what lies behind. Paul's second point in closing the gap is to forget what lies behind. And clearly Paul's not talking about memory here. He's not talking about having your memories erased or ignoring anything that God's ever done. If you've walked with Christ long enough, you know that some of the sweetest victories are won by remembering the mercies of God and what God has done in the past. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about taking anything that's in your background, anything that does not encourage your pursuit of God, and putting it out of your mind. And Paul knew what this was like. See, long before we knew him as the Apostle Paul, he was known as Saul. Saul was a young man, vehement about the Jewish faith, so much, though, that he came, became one of the most vicious and violent enemies of followers of Jesus of that day. In Acts chapter 7, it records uh, the first martyr of our faith, a man named Stephen. And Stephen is preaching in the synagogue that day. And as he's preaching, he's talking all about Jesus. Jesus Christ, the same one who had just been killed not long before. Risen from the dead. And it goes terribly wrong. A mob gets stirred up. And they drag this man, Stephen, out of the synagogue by his cloak and, and they bring him outside to the city walls and they begin to stone him. They begin to throw him with rocks. Throw rocks at him. And as they're doing so, Paul is there and the word tells us that he approves. Not only that, but he's, he's holding their coats. And so Paul is watching Stephen get stoned. He's like, hey, give me your jacket so you can throw him a little harder, a little faster. 
And inside Paul, this, this great disdain for Jesus and for followers of Jesus develops. So much so that he goes to the high priesthood that day. He says, if you give me an order, I'll go to Damascus and elsewhere, and I'll find every follower of Jesus I can, every man, woman, and child, and I'll drag them here back to Jerusalem, where they can be beaten and imprisoned and hopefully even killed. And we'll snuff this thing out. I imagine in writing this, Paul was thinking of some of his own past. As he was saying, it's time for us to forget what lies behind. Because you and I both know shame is a heavy thing, is it not? Shame is a heavy thing because it's weighty. And some of us this morning are so haunted by our past sins, our past mistakes, that we cannot any longer look up into the face of God. It's like our eyes and our, our head just feel so heavy that we inf- instead are just forced to look down at the ground. Like God is calling us forward to something, and we can't even imagine doing that. Our eyes are just set down below. And we learn this thing at a young age, don't we? This inability to look up into the eyes of our father when we do something wrong. My wife and I have a, a little girl who's about to turn two. And I've noticed this is exactly how she responds. Now she's only two, but the sin nature thing is, is wildly taking over at the moment. It's amazing. All right? Now it's only two, so there's not any major life issues yet, but I'm, I'm keeping my eye on it. You know what I mean? I'm concerned about the direction of her life right now. You know. And I notice anytime I catch her doing something wrong, whether I come around the corner and she's punching the cat, which she did not learn from me, all right? Or she's magically teleported to the top of the stairs she knows she's not supposed to climb. Every single time in that moment, what happens? I go up to her, Taylor, don't punch the cat. And what does she do? She averts my eyes. She looks down because she knows she's not supposed to. She kind of swings herself back and forth. Some of us here, feel like God has caught us in the wrong, and we are unwilling to look up at him. But what does the Father do in that moment? What do I do? I get down on her level, I get down on my knees, and she won't look at me, so I, I pick her face up, and I make her look me in the eye so we can have a quick conversation, and then I let her see my, my eyes that are filled with love. That are not brimming with anger at her. That are not upset with her. Sending her a message, yes, that was a mistake. Yes, I love you. And some of us this morning, our heads are hung low, and God's got his face on our chin. And he's trying so badly to lift our face to him so that we can see the gaze of our Father, so we can look into his eyes and find not hatred and anger, not shame and guilt that you think he has for you, but to find the loving kindness that's been won for you by Christ Jesus. And some of us this morning need so badly to let God lift our gaze to him. To say, my son or my daughter, I don't have hatred for you. I don't have shame just hanging over you. Some of us refuse to believe that the promises of the scriptures are true. And it's time for you to decide that you're going to let God determine how he feels about you and not how you think you should be felt about. All throughout the scripture are these wild promises about what happens through our faith in Christ. About us, as far as the east is from the west, so he has forgotten our sins against him. If Paul was here this morning, he would say, Man, if there is grace enough for me, as a murderer of followers of Jesus, surely there is grace enough for you as well. 
It's time to let the scandalous truth of the gospel, of a gospel that is all-inclusive, that calls all to him, take root in your heart and in your spirit. Forgetting what lies behind, Paul would tell us. Now, we don't have time. I just want to touch on this briefly. Forgetting what lies behind also covers those of us who are living off of what God did 10 years ago. I meet an unbelievable amount of people who want to tell me all that God did 10 years ago, and yet there's no current relationship with him. Praise God for what he did 10 years ago. Now jump back in the game and let's believe he's going to do that again. And so for some of us, nostalgia is taking the place of hope. And all we can do is reflect on what God did before instead of believing for what he wants to do right now. Forgetting what lies behind includes that as well. Let's keep moving. What is Paul's third thing that he points us to? He says this. He says, strain forward to what's ahead. It's kind of an odd statement, but Paul has already, in his letter to the Corinthians, given us an illustration of what he's describing here. I want to ask you to turn. Let me just read it to you. In 1 Corinthians 9, he writes this. He says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, talking about the reward for winning a race, actual wreath, but we an imperishable. Well, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I pummel my body and subdue it. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, Paul's illustration is about athletes at the highest level. I know we got some athletes in the room. Perhaps you're leaning back going, I know exactly what he's talking about. You probably don't. All right, Paul's talking about Olympic athletes here. All right, we don't have a whole lot of those in the room. So just hang tight with me for a minute. I know some of you do CrossFit. I know you do. It's great. It's good. Paul is talking about a a commitment of the highest level. All right? He's talking about how an athlete at the Olympic level, every single part of his life is dialed in for optimal performance. Okay, so, so no matter what they eat, when they go to sleep, who they spend time with, what their training plan is, what their workout is for today, what time they're napping to get ready for the workout later in the day, every single part of their life is dialed in for optimal performance. And Paul chooses to use that as the illustration as to how we are to pursue God. Pretty daunting, is it not? The way to go after God, Paul tells us, is with all the discipline and self-denial and planning of an Olympic athlete. What Paul knows was true back then and what was true today is there's never been a Christian who has reached the heights of joy and knowledge in Jesus, who has not done so through rigorous self-denial and planning and training, and follow through. And that's what he chooses to use as an example for us. What does he say here? He says, if I'm going to be the Philippians 3 kind of man, I'm not, I'm not, just, not just running aimlessly. I'm not just boxing at the air. I'm not taking three steps this way and then chosen a different path and going three more steps this way. I'm not just wildly punching the air. No, 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 no. I see the path that God has set before me, and I'm not running aimlessly. I'm running down that path. He goes, and I see the things that are going to keep me from chasing hard after Jesus, and that's where I'm landing my punches. That's the place that I'm choosing to war against, to fight against. See, Paul knows that godliness never accidentally happens. 
Nobody wakes up on a Tuesday suddenly super godly, you know? It's not how it works. Paul knows that the only way to close that gap is with an enormous amount of work. I press on, I strive, I toil. See, some of us here this morning, God's speaking to you right now because you know what you need is a supernatural self-denial. You need to learn the art of self-discipline. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying we create some margin for the dissatisfaction, we forget the things that are keeping us, and then we work. What do you say? He says, I make my body a slave. He's saying, man, I'm going I'm to beat myself into submission so that I am able to run hard after God. Close my gap. See, some of us, we know that there are things that right now God is calling us to leave behind. I believe that for some of us, today is the day that you leave those things behind. That God would be even right now giving you a picture for the man or woman that he's called you to be, and he's revealing to you the things that are keeping you from being that person. Today is the day to make the decision to say, I'm going to leave that stuff behind because pursuing Jesus is more important than that junk. I'm not going to let that stuff keep me back anymore. That God will give you a picture of the grand call he has on your life. And the things that are slowing you down from chasing after those things. Some of us have been a follower of Jesus for 20 years and we've never developed the habit of personal daily time with God. You don't struggle with margin. You don't struggle with what's behind you. You struggle with just planning, with discipline to pursue Jesus. Some of us have been addicted to the same thing for so long and God is saying, it's time for you to raise your hand and ask for help so that we can see that addiction long in your rearview mirror. So maybe you need some margin this morning. Maybe you're like me and you know that, man, it feels so easy to let that dissatisfaction get quieted, get numb. To let that voice of the Spirit inside of me begin to grow quiet. Because I never give an ear to it. Because if you only knew how much I had to do, you would know why I don't have time to lend my ear to that voice. It's time to let that voice breathe again. Maybe for some of you, you sense God right now speaking about your past. And you know that you've been carrying around like a ball and chain on your ankle with some of your past hurt and mistakes. It's time to let the truth of the gospel wash that clean. To get your legs free again from carrying around that chain so that you can pursue God in greater measure. Perhaps you know that hunger for God and you know what it's like to leave it behind and it's time to put a plan into action. Some of us here, can I be honest? It seems like we love sleep more than we love Jesus. I talk with people about why they don't have time with God, and they say, man, I just can't get out of bed before 10 a.m. Get yourself out of bed and get some time with God. You know what I mean? Like God is calling us to put a plan into action that says, I'm going to diligently pursue the things of God. Maybe you're starting with just some time with God in the morning. I can't answer what it is for you, but I bet if you took a little time and prayed about it, God would impress upon you how he would have you begin to put a plan into place about pursuing him. I believe it's time for us to begin to go hard after God. Because there's more for you and there's more for me out there. I'll invite the band to make their way back up. You know, I wonder this morning, as we talk about potential, you ever thought about your potential energy? Potential energy is a, is a really funny thing. 
Potential energy is the description of an object depending on where it is. Here's what I mean. Take a bow and arrow, for example. You take a bow that just lies on the ground, potential energy of zero. You take a bow that's been pulled back, is held strong, potential energy of 100 pounds or whatever that force is. You think of a wrecking ball attached to a crane just sitting here lying flat, potential energy of zero. But when you change the position of that wrecking ball and you begin to wind it up and that wrecking ball comes up here, wind it all the way up, enormous potential energy so that when you let it go, whoom, begin to demolish a building. That's potential energy. See, potential energy is all about position. Depending on the position of the object, dramatically changes its potential. This morning, I want you to know that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have a supernatural amount of potential energy because of your position in Christ. Because of who God has called you to be, because he's placed his spirit inside of you, because of your faith in a Christ who was hung up on a cross and risen from the dead, you have a supernatural amount of potential energy that God wants to do in you, potential of what he wants to do through you. Here's the truth. It's your position that unlocks your potential. It's your position, position. That unlocks your potential. In 1968, in Mexico City, it was summertime. The Summer Olympics were coming to an end. Some of you know, if you've watched the Summer Olympics, the culminating event of the Olympics is the marathon. And oftentimes what happened, at least what did back then, is that as the marathon finished, the closing ceremonies began. And so the marathon winners would come running into the stadium. Thousands of people would be roaring and cheering. They'd be brought out into the middle where they'd get their medals, gold and silver and bronze. In 1968, the closing ceremonies had finished. The awards had all been given out. All the medals had been placed around the necks of the winners. They announced the ending of the Olympics. And the crowd begins to go, and a lot of folks had already left. The PA announcer comes over the PA and says, Ladies and gentlemen, please find your seats once more. We have one more thing. In the distance, you begin to hear the sound of police sirens. They're getting louder and louder. Eventually, you see the blue lights as the police cars make their way into the stadium. What was happening was that a man named John Stephen Aquari, who was a marathon runner from Tanzania, was finally finishing his race. Long after the winners had already been finished. Long after the ceremonies had closed. The crowd notices that his his shirt is tattered and torn. They notice he's got bruises, his shoulders hanging a little funny, and he's limping, but he's moving forward. The crowd, with this great anticipation, watches as this man begins to make his way towards the finish line. Long after that race had finished. He crosses the finish line. The crowd is roaring at their feet. He's rushed off to the hospital, severely dehydrated. It turns out that not long into the race, he had tripped and fallen. When he, do, when he did so, he knocked his head on the ground. He dislocated his shoulder, dislocated his knee, and then was trampled by the rest of the runners. So an interviewer is talking with him. And he says, man, Why on earth would you finish that race? 
That must have been the most painful experience in the whole world. Why would you press forward? A man named John Stephen says this. He says, my country did not send me over 5,000 miles to start a race, but to finish one. Would you stand to your feet with me? My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start a race, but to finish one. Here's what you need to hear this morning. God did not create you, draw you to himself, pour his spirit out on you, give you a course set so that you could get two steps into the race fall, and call it a day. What if God has a a 26-mile course, if you will, set before you, and you stop running after the first mile? What if what God is trying to get you to do this morning is to begin to believe that there is a a grand course? His word promises us us true. Go read Ephesians 2.10. God has incredible things in store that he wants to do in you and powerful things he wants to do through you. But some of us fell and we hurt our knee and things got a little hard and so we bowed out of the race. What if this morning God is telling you to get back in? What if this morning God is saying it's time to begin to run again? You've been walking for a little while now. It's time to pick up the pace and begin to run again. Because what you don't know is that what you're going to see around the bend at mile 10 is more beautiful than you could ever imagine. What if there's something for you that you just don't even know yet? That you don't even see, but because you've, you've chosen to walk instead of run, you're never going to finally get to it. You're never going to get there. God did not design you to simply get by, to simply exist. He designed you to work and toil and close the gap between the person you are right now and the person he's calling you to be. Paul goes on to say in verse 17, he says, imitate me. What if God has a whole slew of people that he wants to bring into your life that you can say with honestly because you've pursued God, hey, if you will imitate me, you will see unlocked in you all that God has for you. What if God would have you bring along a host of people and see them become more like Jesus? You know, just as God has an unlived life within us as people, the only way we get to close the gap between who we are as a church And who God's calling us to be as a church, as a community of people, is that as I choose to close my gap, and Mike chooses to close his gap, Siobhan closes his gap, what happens if all of us personally begin to close the gap between who God has called us to be? We begin to nudge closer to who God has called us to be as a church. God wants to begin to stoke that fire again in you. The fire that believes that the pursuit of him is worth it. I've asked the band just to lead us in a song here about the faithfulness of God. I want to urge you and encourage you as you sing. Would you let that fire breathe again? The fire that begins to see all that God has for you. The fire to believe that God wants to bring souls to himself through you. That God wants to use you to train and disciple and raise up young believers. Would you allow your heart to believe that again? As you sing, would you allow your heart just to say, God, I am in. God, I'm sorry for walking when I should be running, but from this moment forward, I'm picking up the pace. 
stirring for you again, God. Let's pray. God, we come before you right now. Ask right now that you would just invade this theater with your presence. God, I pray that you would speak individually to each and every one of us, that we would begin to see, God, who you have called us and created us to be. You'd give us vision, God, fresh vision, where we've lost it. You'd let us see, once again, that person, that man or woman that you're calling us to be, that we've just been ignoring. Stir in us, God, fresh belief that you want to do that. And we will follow. Come on, let's lift our voices together. For more information and resources, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.